Hello everyone, I'm your host Juliette Lin and this is The Privilege Podcast. In each episode, we will speak with individuals one-on-one to learn from their personal experiences with privilege and provide additional context for why those privileges exist. We hope through these episodes you can start to examine your own privileges in regards to socioeconomic status, race, gender, language, and many others in order to challenge the status quo and work towards creating a more equitable society for everyone. Thanks for joining us and make sure to subscribe for new episodes. My first conversation is with a dear friend and fellow USC alumnus from the class of 2017. My name is Grant Singer. I'm from the Bay Area. I grew up just outside of San Francisco and went to school in the city and then moved to LA to go to USC and study film. I'm in and out of the entertainment industry and hoping to pursue more jobs once this lovely little shutdown is over. To start off the conversation, when is the first time that you really recognized your privilege or understood what privilege was? The different parts of my privilege came to me at different times in my life. White privilege was something that I didn't really understand until I was in high school, whereas socioeconomic privilege was something that I got earlier in life. We were visiting family in the American South. We passed through a part of South Carolina on our way that was just deeply, deeply impoverished. Mobile homes and the most stereotypical images of American poverty. Not so much the way that poverty looks in urban cities, but something that I'd never really seen before. Having a sheltered childhood in a suburb outside of San Francisco, which is already just such an affluent city, seeing an area of the country that had poverty like that, people who weren't able to plant roots for whatever reason, made me realize, first of all, America does not always take care of all of its citizens. And then also just realizing that people did not live like I did. It was around the time when you're in middle school and you're starting to realize that there is a bigger world outside of your school and all of that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think especially growing up, we all are in a little bubble of whatever ecosystem that we live in. And school districts are divided by where you live. So obviously, you're going to school with people of the same income level. You just assume that that is the reality for everybody. Did you have any conversations with your parents about this? Or was this just an internal, oh, wow, I never realized this? I talked to my parents a little bit about it, and I don't remember the exact conversation because it was many, many years ago, but I do remember that we all decided as a family that we would not be doing that drive anymore (laughs) because it was just very alarming, and it was something that I don't think we wanted to experience again, and I think that is something that comes up a lot with every conversation with privilege is it's uncomfortable to face privilege and to see people who do not have the same privilege as you, quickly brings up feelings of denial and wanting to stay in this ignorant bubble. And I think my parents had this protective sense of, I don't think Grant is old enough to be seeing things like this. I know how I grew up because my middle school intentionally wanted us to feel like a bubble. And if we learned about things outside of the convenient San Francisco bubble of life where everybody is happy and there is no racism. If those topics came into the curriculum, they were definitely seen as that's not in America. That's in a different part of the world. We're safe here. It's a good place here. 
I don't think that we approach the topic as we need to discuss this and, and figure out our, our place mm-hmm. in the world and acknowledge it. It was more like, let's never discuss this and we're not going to go near this anymore. And this gets into a whole thing about parenting. I don't know when those conversations should start to happen, but probably as early as you can, because these are conversations you'll have for your whole life, definitely. And I think it's really important that you bring that up because especially last summer, everything that was happening with Black Lives Matter, a lot of media for young kids like Nickelodeon and Sesame Street, they were all debating, should we talk about racism on Sesame Street? These kids are really young, right? Like you like you said, your parents want to protect you in a sense. They don't want you to see the negative effects of how our society runs. But at the mm-hmm. same time, when you aren't having those conversations and when you aren't engaging with the reasons why that happens, it gets pushed to the side and is in the background and you continue just living your life in the bubble. I'm curious to hear what was your bubble? I lived in a county outside of San Francisco called Marin and has one of the highest per capita incomes in the entire country. Marin County's per capita income is $72,000. In Tiburon, the city where Grant grew up, has a per capita income of $112,000, more than three times the national amount of $34,000. Very quickly, we can start to see how this economic privilege that Grant was born into benefited him from the very beginning. I went to private school pretty much my whole life, and that was a choice that my parents made, and I think it's really interesting to compare a private education in a place like Marin with a public one. My bubble growing up was very white, very upper middle class and upper class. The private school, I wore a uniform. It was very, it was was very (laughs) preppy. I guess I just thought that that was what middle school pretty much looked like whoever you were across the country. And I think when you're young, you're used to that being your worldview. But I think the biggest thing that I look back and say, wow, that was just really white. It wasn't like I thought that was the way the world looked, but it just never occurred to a young Grant that that was interesting. Like, why Mm. are there so many white people? I, I guess I was just like, white people live here and I live with them. Marin County specifically has some of the most racially segregated municipalities in the Bay Area, with white residents often comprising 85 to 90 percent of the population. The experience that Grant had of living with so many white people is a common phenomenon across the country, given that 90 percent of suburban counties in the United States have a majority white population. This racial segregation was specifically designed through restrictive land use policies like redlining and racial deed covenants, which barred non-white families from purchasing, renting, or even visiting homes past certain hours in specific areas. Even though racial covenants were outlawed in the Fair Housing Act of 1968, the segregation and inequality they established continues to this day. White families who bought homes before the Fair Housing Act saw huge price appreciation allowing them to build wealth and pass it down to future generations. However, non-white Americans were restricted to purchasing homes in less desirable neighborhoods and were forced to buy them at inflated prices with more expensive mortgages. This is a clear example of how segregation affected not only home ownership, but the ability to accumulate and build wealth. Currently, 75% of white Americans own their homes, compared to 44% of black Americans. 
Consequently, the median net worth of a white family is almost 10 times that of a black family at $171,000 versus $17,600. Was there a specific moment in time where you had that reflection? Was there something that caused you to think about that more deeply? One of the white families at my middle school adopted a, a young boy from Africa and that was a big deal in the community because everyone was like, whoa, this is not something that happens very often. And he was one of maybe three black kids in my entire school growing up. It was something that sent ripples in a way that made me realize that there were conversations about race that existed and that maybe weren't being had. It was like, it seems like there's a lot going on here, but they're not telling the kids. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit like when you first start to hear about sex ed and you're like, they don't tell us anything <laughs> about this, but we know that there's something yeah. bigger here that we're not allowed to know about. And I think that's how the, the topic of race was sort of discussed. And when I started to realize, oh, there's something going on here. So there is this difference between realizing your whiteness and then also realizing your privilege as a white person, I think those are two different realizations. So when did you come to realize the privileges that were associated with your whiteness and with your socioeconomic status? I think it took me longer to realize the way that privilege affected my life because all I could see was people around me who looked like me. And without seeing other kinds of people from different backgrounds, it was hard to understand the contrast I had an experience when I was a sophomore in high school. I had just gotten my learner's permit to drive, and my parents were very excited. And on the first night, I went out driving with my dad in this very, very, very small town called Belvedere. And my dad wanted to teach me how to parallel park. I was very stressed out because this was the first time I had really driven with a permit. I was going really slowly through this affluent, possibly the most affluent <laughs> place that you can imagine. And a cop was passing in his patrol car. I don't know what he was looking for, but he saw me going really slowly in this neighborhood. He turned around and followed me for a while. And I was like, what should I do, dad? And he was like, don't worry, you're fine. We're just looking for parking. Then he turned his lights on. So I pulled over. I knew from driving school that I should get my license and registration out of the uh, mm -hmm. glove compartment which I did, but I dropped my driver's license in the space between the seat and the door where you can't ever oh my gosh. <laughs> get anything from that abyss. So when the police officer came to the window, I rolled it down, but my hand was deeply in the void under the seat. So what was the conversation with the cop? He just waited for me to continue searching the void. And I eventually <laughs> found my little permit. And he was like, you have your brights on and I flash my brights at you, but you didn't turn yours off and you're going really slowly. So what are you doing? He was like, I'm going to give you a warning, but there wasn't a written warning. He was just like, I'm warning oh. you. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure warnings have to be written if they're real warnings. But he was like, don't do this again. I am warning you. And then he let me go. But it wasn't until after that I realized that if I didn't look the way I did and I had been driving around in that suburb looking for parking and I had my hand under the seat when yeah, the officer came to the window. Yeah, things would have probably been really different. I think my dad told me afterwards, when a police officer comes to your window, you're supposed to have your hands in invisible places, but I didn't do it and it never occurred to me that I should because I didn't realize that 
he might be threatened by me. And that's because I didn't expect him to be because as a white male, that's just not something that you're ever taught because of your privilege. It was that moment after that incident that I was like, okay, wow, I am very privileged because when the cop came to the door, he didn't even say, put your hands where I can see him. He just let me search for my ID for like a while. (laughs) He just didn't even ask what I was doing. And I think that level of privilege is something that is so extreme and so different. It shook me up a lot, even though it was such a small incident. And it really made me question things that I never questioned before, like why I would never get racially profiled at TSA. Mm -hmm. Moments like that, when you meet authority figures and realizing the way I was treated versus the way other people um, would be treated based on just the way that they look and the way that I looked. That was probably the first moment where I was like, okay, lot of privilege. Research compiled and analyzed from more than 100 million traffic stops in the United States has confirmed that police are more likely to pull over non-white drivers. This racial bias was confirmed by measuring daytime stops against nighttime stops, where darkness would make it more difficult to establish a driver's race, which would contribute to the reason why Grant was pulled over at night despite being white. The study also found that Black and Latino drivers are more likely to be searched despite the fact that more white drivers are found with drugs and other contraband. The fact that the police let Grant off with a simple verbal warning and no further action is likely a result of his whiteness. I'm curious where you got the context for maybe this isn't how other people would be treated if they look differently because I think a lot of people with privilege could go through those situations and not even think twice about it. They wouldn't necessarily think, oh, thank goodness I look the way I look. They would have just been like, oh, that was just a normal interaction with a cop. If people are nice, that is what an interaction with a cop should look like. I mean, that is the rhetoric that people use. Part of it was in conversations with my dad after that because he had experiences with police officers growing up because he looks Jewish. He is Jewish. He was profiled and pulled over, verbally harassed, never physically harassed. But that history in his mind was present in the car with us. And he reminded me this went really smoothly. And I was like, what do you mean? That seemed terrible. And he was like, no, no, no. This was very smooth. It is important to note that while white Jewish people do benefit from white privilege and have made it into the top echelons of privilege and power, especially in the world of Hollywood, they were largely discriminated against well into the 20th century, being barred from buying homes in white neighborhoods as well. While that anti-Semitism still runs deep to this day, our social construct of power and oppression in the United States is more so based on skin color than religion or ethnicity, allowing white Jewish people to benefit from many aspects of white privilege. The other thing that I should mention was at the time, I was still really shaken up about just the fact of being pulled over. And I definitely was telling people, you'll never believe that I was pulled over for nothing. I was kind of indignant about it. And It was through those conversations with people, including one of my teachers, who was a woman of color, who started to open the door to, here's what you need to know about your experience. Mm. It wasn't the way that the world usually works, especially for people who don't have your privilege. So I think it was in those conversations where I started to realize the significance of that moment in my life, which felt like kind of an embarrassing beginning to having a driver's license. And actually was this much bigger symbolic 
thing, which carried Mm -hmm. a lot of subtext. It was great that from that experience, you were open to hearing other people's experiences to shed light on your experience. And I think that's Mm -hmm. always super helpful when having conversations, especially surrounding race. It only takes a quick search of names like Dwayne Wright, Philando Castile, Sandra Bland, and Samuel DeBose to see how a petty traffic stop by police officers can quickly escalate into death for black people. An air freshener hanging on a rearview mirror, a broken taillight, a failure to signal lane change, and a missing front plate. None dissimilar to Grant's flashing brights and slow speed. However, black people are almost three times as likely than white people to be killed by the police and Latino people almost two times as likely. I do want to talk a little bit more about your educational upbringing. I know you mentioned you lived in a very affluent neighborhood, went to one of the best private schools. If you would share just a little bit more about that and how you feel that affected your ability to succeed and go to USC. I went to private school pretty much my whole life, starting from preschool, kindergarten, went to like a fancy Montessori school. It was expensive. And my parents sent me there because that's where other people sent their kids in our socioeconomic level. It was probably around 10,000 a year for Mm -hmm. that school. But I think now it's probably closer to the twenties. Although I left there and went to an even more expensive middle school. (laughs) And that was where they really created a bubble. They wanted the kids to be sheltered. They wanted us to not be exposed to the world. In the 2021 to 2022 school year, Marin Montessori, where Grant attended school, now costs nearly $23,000 for half days and $32,000 for full days. The middle school he attended now costs nearly $36,000 and the high school $52,000. At these rates, a full 14 years of private school education through high school in Marin County now costs $544,000 or more making it highly inaccessible for the average American. A Montessori school, by the way, which I had never heard of before, follows a method of education that discourages conventional measures of achievement like grades and tests, and instead focuses on allowing kids to focus on innate curiosities and give them large amounts of freedom in their academic discoveries and are staffed by specially trained teachers. The school boasts how Montessori students go on to highly regarded high schools and universities, demonstrating how an affluent educational upbringing can lead to acceptances at prestigious universities. If you had children that you wanted to send to a school where they would have a lot of focus on education and arts and not as much focus on sports, which is something that was really popular at the public schools in my area, then you would go to this academic middle school where we all wore uniforms. And if we didn't have our shirts tucked in, we would get in trouble. That was sort of the beginning of the private school trek that I I took from middle school all the way through higher education. And you asked what effect that had on my life, that educational privilege of going to institutions that cost a lot of money. And I would say that what makes private school distinct is that nobody falls through the cracks at private school. Everybody gets an equal chance at a really high level of education. At the middle school I went to, which was private, there were students in my class who really had trouble reading. And there was unequal footing in terms of those base 
skills at that age, like reading comprehension, writing, all of those things. And at the school I went to, they got one-on-one tutoring. They would have individual instruction with a, a licensed specialist whose sole job was to help those with neurodiversity now. We called it learning differences back then. Mm. But that allowed every student to have educational equity. It, it leveled the playing field in a way that nobody would end up with less, no matter mm. where they were standing. That's a big appeal of private school. Small class sizes, one-on-one education if needed. Everybody got a a really strong shot at being able to move on from private school and stay in the private school. And they got that leg up over other students who, if they maybe were struggling in math at a public school, might end up in a remedial math class. They wouldn't be able to break out of those strata it's like if, if you're not good at one skill, you're never going to be good at it because you won't ever break out of the lower level math class and you won't ever get that push. And at private school, it was guaranteed you would get that push. They would stop at nothing to make sure that you were seen as a high achieving academic student. Thinking back to middle school and that time, I feel like there were always conversations surrounding no child left behind, but that really can only happen if you have the resources and the money to make sure that no kid falls behind, it's not like, well, if the student cares enough, they wouldn't fall behind. No, they need support and they need resources to be able to do that. A lot of kids in high school also have to work or they have to take care of siblings or other things like that, which it sounds like that definitely wasn't a concern for you. It probably wasn't a concern for anybody at your high school. I think that's extremely true. (laughs) And nobody (laughs) ever worried at private school that someone would fall behind. It's hard for me to compare because my private school experience was pretty much my only experience. But I grew up in an affluent place that had public schools that were very well funded. But a lot of people still chose to send their children to private schools because they felt that those public schools, as well funded as they were, weren't well-funded enough. In my case, I really wanted to go there because they had a huge arts program, like performing arts, and they even had some really great music classes and everything like that. And as a middle schooler who was really passionate about performing and singing and dancing and movie making, that was something that you just couldn't get at public school, Mm -hmm. even in in the area that I grew up in, which was pretty darn well-funded. And that's why my parents chose to send me there because that was something I was really interested in. The private high school Grant attended afterwards has a student-teacher ratio of 5 to 1 compared to the national average of 13 to 1, with 84% of the faculty holding advanced degrees. The school offers 12 AP courses, 15 different sports, including fencing, sailing, and field hockey, and 35 different art classes. Having the privilege to pursue arts is something that has really been a thread throughout my entire life. Not having the pressure to immediately need to make money to pay for student loans, for instance, but being able to pursue passions, to pursue dreams, to pursue art, and not being forced to do things that make economic sense for your future was a huge privilege. And that's something that private school my entire life afforded me. Even going to film school, I didn't have to major in something more STEM related because obviously film is a gamble, but because of my privilege, I was able to 
choose to pursue that without being as worried about making a living immediately after. The one thing you mentioned as well is that all the students at your school were high achieving. And especially with college applications, they sort of see that as like your character, who you are as a person is high achieving. But what you're saying Mm -hmm. is that everyone was high achieving because they had the money to be high achieving and recognizing that hard work isn't the only thing that you need. It's hard work and money and access and all these things. But would love to talk a little bit about your experience with going from high school to college and how you saw privilege play into all of that as well. First of all, college applications is a big deal. SAT tutoring was something that I did because my parents wanted me to have really good scores so that I would be a strong candidate. And that was something that was more or less expected of everyone I went to high school with. And even if they didn't say it, I'm sure the majority of my classmates did SAT tutoring. I didn't realize it was like a hush, hush. Let's all pretend we're really smart and Mm -hmm. don't need extra help. SATs are notoriously, infamously racist, classist. People do much better on SATs when they've had tutoring, and tutoring costs a lot of money. White and Asian American students have consistently scored significantly higher on the SATs than any other racial group. And the single greatest predictable indicator of score is the parent's level of income. The higher the income, the greater the score. However, it is important to note that Asians are the most economically divided racial group in the United States, with the highest gap between the rich and the poor. So while some Asian Americans are excelling at the highest levels, others remain at the lowest rungs of economic opportunity and mobility. That was a place where privilege between high school and college was really apparent because Everybody was just expected to do really well and go to either a great private university or a really, really good public one like the UC system. And to do that, you needed good SAT scores. And to get good SAT scores, you needed money. I mean, the SAT is really hard. I have no good memories of that. It's not very fun. And it's really hard to do well without at least some prep books or practice tests. Yeah. I mean, it's really not based on anything relevant. There are just tips and tricks Mm -hmm. and things you learn about how to take the SAT that makes you a good SAT taker, but it doesn't really Mm -hmm. test your actual skills. It does not. It is simple gatekeeping. And I truly hope the tide is turning against the SATs because it's a terrible thing. With the coronavirus pandemic, nearly two-thirds of all U.S. four-year colleges and universities have moved to become either test-optional or test-blind for the fall of 2021. But for test-optional schools, taking the SATs will still give students an edge in admissions. This test-optional policy was challenged in a lawsuit against the UC system, and the California courts subsequently ordered the UCs to become test-blind, ruling that their test-optional policy would have given more privileged students advantages in their applications than less privileged students and students with disabilities. For the class of 2021, across the nine UC campuses, the number of applicants from underrepresented racial groups rose significantly, and admissions officers have noted an increase in the quality of the applicant pool and the ability to evaluate students more holistically and consider students who might have been previously cut off based solely on SAT scores. 
I don't think education and those kinds of choices should even come down to numbers. I I really think that it should be much more holistic. Even in terms of college applications, GPA plays such a huge part of it, but Mm. so many school districts don't even offer AP classes, arts, and all of those extracurriculars that often help boost people's resumes. That's a great point. Not even to mention that people with privilege like myself had a lot more time to apply to as many schools as they wanted to. I never had to worry about application fees, luckily. Those are further impediments to having options and having choices about your future, which I think is something that privilege allows people to do without thinking, is having choices. When I was in college, I was helping this girl apply to colleges. She was a first-generation student, and Her mom didn't have a credit card, so she couldn't easily apply to schools online. She would have to send it by mail with a check, and that's just so much extra labor, and those barriers often keep people from even wanting to apply in the first place. I'd love to chat a little bit more about your experience at USC. I know it's often coined as the University of Spoiled Children, which I didn't realize the extent to which that actually truthfully embodied (laughs) a lot of USC students' socioeconomic background and and their experience. I remember when I went on my college visit to USC and I was blown away by the flashiness of the school. Students driving really nice cars and they don't have a care in the world. The fact that Greek life looks the way it does comes from a place of extreme wealth and whiteness. But in terms of my experience at USC, I was in the film school, which again is, an, is, an, is a very well-funded part of an already very well-funded university. It had more diversity than any school that I had been to before. And the film school made an effort to make sure that artists with different backgrounds and voices would be heard. But at the same time, it's really expensive. I don't know how much it costs now, but it's, it's like mind bog. Like it's probably, is it like $70,000 a year? Yeah. And I won't be shy to say that the film school has a lot more little fees that you have to pay. It's more than textbooks. Every class has camera production mm-hmm. fees, insurance fees, all of that mm-hmm. stuff. It's impossible <laughs> for yeah. some people to, to pay for all that. While USC has already surpassed its own goal of creating a $6 billion endowment, the estimated cost to attend the school in the 2021 to 2022 school year, including tuition, housing, and other expenses, is $82,000. This means a four-year degree would cost $328,000. In comparison, the average cost of tuition and fees for a four-year education at an in-state public college is $39,000, and for a private college is $140,000. I'm curious how you saw your privilege play out Mm -hmm. specifically within the film school. I think at the time what I noticed was that it was so Hollywood-focused, which is as we know, an organization of white men specifically, that was deeply reflected by the way that USC's film school was laid out and set up. And the films that we watched were Hollywood movies, and they focused on white men telling stories. There was a Spielberg class, and if you missed that one, you could take the Hitchcock class. And not to say that these aren't great directors, although Hitchcock obviously is pretty problematic, but 
I was always confused why it was so hard to learn about anybody outside of that group. And it's a shame because there's so much more. But I took this class taught by Todd Boyd called Race, Class, and Gender in American Film. And that was the only class we watched a movie directed by a black man. And it was Spike Mm -hmm. Lee and it was uh, Do the Right Thing. There were really unpleasant microaggressions happening in our discussions about films. It is perhaps important to note that Professor Todd Boyd himself is a black man amongst the majority of white male professors at USC. The Instagram handle black underscore at underscore USC has shared over 550 unheard stories of black students and faculty at USC and the countless number of microaggressions and overt incidents of racism. Did you feel in any way that you got more access to opportunities, attention, validation, or privileges being in the film school. I don't remember in my production classes if I was given any different treatment than the people around me, but I'm sure that there were plenty of implicit biases that were Mm. at play and that I just couldn't see or that the people perpetuating those couldn't see. But I would say probably the biggest one would be in the application process. I got into USC film school. We can imagine that the admissions committee made assumptions about my race and my privilege that factored into their decision to accept my application. And I'm sure they saw the high school and the elementary school that you went to and everything that that signifies and probably your ability to pay for school. USC at the time, I think I read somewhere they were making an effort to be need blind, but at the time they were not need blind. So if you needed financial aid, that could affect your ability to get in. I did not. Mm -hmm. Obviously, that's a big, big privilege, not having to take out student loans because there's not the pressure to work. This is a massive point of privilege that is rarely discussed, yet undoubtedly points to a major inequality within the college admissions process. Just a little over 100 colleges in the United States have recently become need-blind. The rest of the 5,000-plus schools still take into consideration whether a student, or in many cases their family, can afford tuition, meaning that one's socioeconomic status can make the difference between an acceptance or rejection. How do you really see privilege affecting your life today in the film industry? And then in what ways would you hope to be able to use your privilege to elevate those around you and have those conversations. One of the biggest areas of privilege that's affecting my life right now in this pandemic is that I'm not forced to work. I can be home. I live with my parents. I don't have to pay rent. I don't have to go out into the world. I don't have to be exposed. And the pandemic has really, in so many ways, exposed the the privilege that I have and that so many people have In the United States, less than 30% of workers are able to work from home, and the ability to work from home differs enormously by race and ethnicity. Less than one in five black workers and roughly one in six Hispanic workers are able to work from home, compared with one in three white workers. Additionally, only 9% of workers in the lowest quartile of the wage distribution can telework, compared with 62% of workers in the highest quartile, meaning that people who are already making the most money and likely have access to healthcare are able to stay home, while people who make the least amount of money are forced to go to work at a physical location, exposing them to more potential risk of infection and death due to COVID. I have a huge amount of privilege in Hollywood and everywhere. 
simply by the mere fact that I am a white, straight male, that automatically gives so many people who look like me this inherent leg up over people who don't look like me. And I think that comes down a lot to the people who are doing the hiring, doing the accepting, doing the funding. If I want to get a film made and I need to ask for an executive producer, there's a good chance that producer is a white man who looks like me and probably will give me money because I look like him. There's a lot of that. Oh, you remind me of me when I was younger and that sort of kinship, that sense of belonging, like you're one of us, so I want to support you. Yeah. That is such a big part of the industry. It, It goes beyond what is even conscious. We were talking about the implicit bias towards the familiar in terms of race, orientation, gender, definitely affects the way that I can move about and the mobility that I have in the industry. While the entertainment industry has seen some progress in terms of increasing diversity in front of the camera, 91% of C-level positions across the major studios are still held by white people, and 82% are held by men. This means that white men are still in charge of most of the major decisions, including funding and greenlighting projects behind the scenes. To get to the topic of what can those in privilege do to help those who do not have the same level of privilege? The most obvious answer is to amplify the voices of those who do not have the same privilege. What might be getting left out is to not be speaking for them. And that's something that really bothers me when I see movies about people who do not have privilege directed, written, produced by people who are white, who I don't want to say nothing about what the story they're telling is, because obviously there are universal themes, but the experience of a black man in the world is not something that a white writer has any business writing about, really. The idea of amplifying voices should also come with, but don't speak for people whose voices need amplifying. Just give them the microphone. So I would say creating platforms, be an advocate and use your privilege to help others who have less. Fund their movies and let them tell their stories. Stay out of the way. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I think that's great advice, uh, especially in filmmaking because media has such a huge impact on how people see the world and how we come to understand it. And if you're telling someone else's story without really understanding what they're going through, then it's going to be a very surface level understanding. So like you said, just passing the mic and making sure you're letting people speak from their true experiences and amplifying those voices is really important. As a last question, do you have any resource recommendations, whether that be books, movies, podcasts? There's a podcast that the New York Times put out a few months ago called Nice White Parents. It, it spans decades in the New York public school system, but it really gets into this idea of educational gentrification. And it shows how you can make public schools have curriculums that rival private schools, but not create equity in them. One of the case studies is this public school. They have this really impressive French program. 
It was sponsored by the French consulate, and it's a really big deal for a public school to have this. But so many of the students who live in the neighborhood who want to go to this school do not speak French and have no way of actually taking advantage of that really incredible opportunity except for the white students, because they can do tutoring and all those things. It's a really eye-opening look at the way that public education is being treated and the way that well-meaning, nice white parents can still screw it up for everybody. My other plug is this really great organization called 826, which was started in San Francisco, and now they have chapters nationwide. And I started volunteering there in high school And that was a place where I felt like I could make a difference as a person with educational privilege specifically. It's a nonprofit. It has workshops and one-on-one tutoring to help underserved students learn creative and expository writing skills. That really helps them with college apps, with high school papers, even middle school students get a lot out of it, specifically in the creative writing classes because it inspires them to become great writers, to be imaginative, to have an outlet to express themselves. Leveling the playing field in that way is a really, really incredible way to create more equity and to give students who don't have that one-on-one tutoring that a private school could automatically give them. Suddenly you have this great nonprofit that can provide some of the Um, resources that we know many public schools lack. They also have math and English and history, just generic tutoring opportunities. So if you want to get involved in a really cool organization, check out 826. They have chapters all over the country. Incredible. Those are two very awesome resources. I'll make sure to link them below. We're just scratching the surface of this conversation. So excited to continue this dialogue offline and with everyone else listening. If anybody listening to this wants to explore these topics, if you look like me and you want to know how you can help and you want to ask someone, you can ask me. I love to have these conversations because I learn so much and I hope that we can just keep on making the world a more fair, better place. All right, that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Privilege Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to share it with a friend and on your social media as a launching point for you to have your own conversations around privilege and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Sending you so much love. See you next time.